Well, friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This morning we're reading from verses 1 to 6. Uh, if you've been with us, you know we're in a series in 2 Corinthians that we're calling Grace for the Week. Um, the past few weeks, Paul, in the first two chapters, has been in a very autobiographical section of his letter where he's defending and explaining uh, his apostolic office and ministry among the Corinthian church. Uh, in chapter 3, what we're reading today, he begins to transition out of that and begins to focus on the nature of gospel ministry and what that truly looks like and is. And so the sermon title today is The Fruit of Gospel Ministry. And so... If you are able, I invite you to stand with me. We stand because it is an act of worship as we read and receive God's word with reverence for God's word. Hear it now, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, reading verses 1 to 6. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. And would you join me in asking the Lord's help once more? Good and gracious Father, apart from your Spirit, the words we've just read are words written on a page. But with your Spirit's presence and ministry in us and among us, these words uh, will be understood and received for what they are, uh, your words, the words of life. And so encourage us, speak to us, Lord, not simply individually, but corporately, as you do a work among this church, building the body up in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. How can you know if a church is being faithful and fruitful in the gospel? What would that look like? How would you assess a church to even know that a church is being faithful and fruitful in the gospel? What kind of things would you look for? Would it be evident in how many people are filling the pews or how great the praise team sounds or if the church has state-of-the-art lights or if the church budget is increasing every year? What would it look like for a church to prove and to show forth fruitfulness in its gospel ministry. You know, uh, there have been many times over the years as this church has grown and morphed and God has done a work here that friends uh, from afar particularly um, have said to me over a text message, a phone call, or every once in a while when I get to meet them, say something like, it really seems like Cornerstone is doing a great gospel work in Lansdale. And the cynical side of me says, based on what? And then of course, they always own up to it and they say, well, it just looks that way from Instagram. It looks that way from what we can see. And to be honest, I've done and said the same things myself. Seeing simply from a reel that someone posted or photographs made in a beautiful collage. Oh, it seems like you're doing really good gospel work. But what is the fruit of good gospel ministry? Is it something that can be captured in a photo and written in a caption? 
what does fruitfulness in the gospel look like? I think Paul gives an indication of that by telling us and showing us that the fruit of gospel ministry is seen when the Holy Spirit's presence and his power is at work in a church among a body and lives are being changed. When the Holy Spirit is present and powerfully working among us to transform us to live, not by human effort and sheer willpower, but by his divine power, we are living unto new life and new obedience. That's the main point of our sermon today. The one sentence summary of what I want us to meditate on. The fruit of gospel ministry is seen in new life and new obedience through the Holy Spirit. And as we meditate and focus on that one sentence summary, let's begin looking at our passage. Apostle Paul begins like this in verse one. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Now, let me set the stage of what's going on. The culture in the city of Corinth was one that was really obsessed with status and power and position and prestige. Appearance was everything to the city of Corinth. Looking impressive, looking strong, looking wise, looking put together. That was everybody's highest pursuit. And as a result of that cultural value, it began seeping into the church. And as a result, churches began looking for and emphasizing all these superficial things over spiritual things. Churches also wanted to look impressive and important and significant. And one of those areas this became evident was in who the church had as their preacher or their teacher. The Corinthians wanted uh, people who were well-known and educated and articulate and well-respected. You know, in our days, it would be like a church wanting a pastor or spiritual leaders who have their doctoral degrees or who have a couple of books on Amazon's top 10 Christian list or serve on the board of a few uh, well-known Christian organizations or have a Twitter following of a, a massive amount of, of uh, followers who listen to every word. They say, what is that in our day and age? Well, it looks something like, yeah, how impressive is your preacher? The Corinthian church thought this is what it meant to do gospel ministry right. And so as a result of that, one of the problems they had with the church of Corinth, or one of the problems the church of Corinth had with Paul was that he had no letters of recommendation. He had nothing to show. They were, by the way, letters of recommendation were essentially just personal endorsements written by other people who said, this guy's ministry is legitimate. This guy's preaching is on point. I'm sure many of you at some point in your life have received a letter of recommendation in college, grad school, internship, a job. When you get a letter of recommendation, you want a person who's not simply honest, right? Because honesty cannot be so good all the time. You want somebody who can also puff you up a little bit, right? Who will only focus on the good things about you. Now, what's ironic for Apostle Paul is the Corinthian church was asking for letters of recommendation from him even though he was the one who planted the church, he was the one who had shared the gospel with them in the first place. And so the fact that he had no letters was a problem for the Corinthian church, but the very fact that they were so concerned about it was the problem Paul had about the Corinthian church. Why did they care so much? I think it's because Paul was worried that they were losing sight of the true nature of gospel ministry. They were paying far too much attention to the superficial things about church 
things that would make them look impressive to the world, but eventually really made them miss out on the truly good spiritual things God was doing in their midst. This is something that all of us need to be warned about and pay close attention to in our own day and age because we're not immune to the temptation. We do have a temptation, not simply to look for letters of recommendation, but to look for that which is most impressive about a church according to superficial on the surface things. Isn't that what we count? Every single one of us can be tempted to judge the faithfulness and the fruitfulness of a church's gospel ministry based on subjective, superficial measures that reflect more of what the world thinks is important than what God thinks is important. I was listening to a podcast a few weeks ago, a podcast where a few pastors are in conversation, and one of the things they were talking about was reminiscing the time back in March 2020 uh, when we all had to switch to online, digital, virtual worship. And one of the things that one of the guys mentioned uh, was that he said, wasn't this, the feeling at that time was very much like um, that day when you're in elementary school and your science project is due and you haven't really worked on it. And some of you, you know, your parents worked so late and then so you just had to do it yourself. And on that day, no matter how prepared you were, you had to turn in your science project. Some of it was like really nice. And then, you know, uh, some of the, your classmates had things like, you know, a battery and a potato and a windmill and all sorts of things. And you just had a couple of paper towel rolls just glued together. And everyone had to show up and show what they had. And, and he was saying, well, it was, it's very interesting that when we moved to online worship, it was like every church's uh, personal like debut, right? A <laughs> public debut. And every church was nervous because up until then, you actually had no idea what was going on in other churches. Like you didn't know how good their praise teams were or how many artistic people they had or how you know, well executed the timing of their churches were. And so when we all went online, everybody began looking and began uh, either envying or being self-righteous over how good they were or how uh, much better other churches were. And the interesting thing is that when we began looking at those other things, it wasn't it wasn't out of the normal for somebody to tell me that they had checked out like three or four churches online that Sunday, that we begin looking for these superficial things that we found impressive and attractive. And we said, oh, we really like that. Oh, we don't really like that. And so people began judging, evaluating, assessing churches according to these external criteria that said actually nothing about whether spiritual fruit was being born in the church or not. Now, we don't have letters of rec recommendation today, but there are modern equivalents of letters of recommendation. When you look at a church, you're thinking about going to a church, are you looking for what appears powerful and impressive about this group of people? And this kind of preoccupation um, is ultimately unhelpful. It's unhealthy. It's unhealthy for our church members. It feeds into a growing consumerism by appealing to superficial things. And so you want a church merely by what it can offer you and what you think is attractive about it rather than whether it's faithful to the gospel. Also for spiritual leaders and pastors, it's dangerous and unhealthy because it adds pressure to treat ministry like it's a production, like it's a performance, where you end up pleasing man far more than you're seeking to please God. And so unfortunately, the idea of letters of recommendation, they still exist in the church today, and a focus on them takes away your focus on discerning whether or not true fruit is being born in 
the church. Now, what is that fruit? And we've already said it, but the fruit is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit working in the group of people to bring about new life and new obedience. So Paul goes on to say in verse two, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Now, remember last week in the passage, Paul had said, you guys are the Roma of Christ. This week, he's saying, you're the letters of recommendation. And what he means is this, you guys are asking for my endorsements. You want to know whether I'm a legitimate gospel preacher and whether my ministry is legitimate? Well, you're the evidence of it because I preached the gospel to you. I shared the gospel and you came to believe and your changed, transformed life is the proof that I am a, an authentic apostle and preacher of the gospel. Paul is saying it's not a piece of paper that endorses me, it's the people. It's not a letter that endorses me, it's the lives that have been changed. And think about, we all have these uh, certain restaurants that we really like, that we think is, is legit. But of course, if you Google them or search them on Yelp, they don't get great reviews, great stars. You rave about a place, you know, some of the places I love in Chinatown, that I tell everybody who comes, you need to go to this place. And they look it up and they're like, why does it have two and a half stars? I'm like, that's a good thing. <laughs> and a place that doesn't get all the endorsements, but you, but you love it. And you frequent it often. You wouldn't go in and say, how come you don't have letters of recommendation? Where are your endorsements? Where are your five-star reviews? And they would simply look at you and they say, the fact that you come every Tuesday for the lunch special, <laughs> that's proof that we're legitimate. You are the endorsement. You are the letter. And so what Paul is doing here is he's challenging the Corinthians. He's challenging you and me that the fruit of gospel ministry is evidence in our own lives. You're the letter of recommendation that proves the gospel is real and the Holy Spirit is at work. Do you see that in yourself? Do you know that you are the letter of recommendation, that the gospel is powerful and the spirit is at work? Your life being transformed, walking in obedience to Christ, conformed more and more into his image. That is the proof that the gospel is here and being worked out in our lives. Do you know that you're the book that the world is reading? You are the letter that unbelievers are looking at so that they might know something of the gospel. This is why Paul goes on to say, to be known and read by all. Your life displays the truth of the gospel and the spirit at work. So that's a question you must ask yourself. And it's a question I'm asking you today. When you look at your own life, you evaluate your own life. Does your life exhibit the evidence of a gospel at work to change you powerfully from within? Now, I want to make this distinction because so many times that this distinction is not made, we fall into the era of moralism. And that distinction is this. Moral renovation, behavior modification is not the same as transformative heart change. So many times Christianity is reduced to moralism and a niceness, right? And so people, you hear this all the time, say, yeah, yeah, oh, church, Jesus, yeah, religion, yeah. Yeah, but isn't Christianity, at the end of the day, isn't it about being good to your neighbor? Isn't it about being a good person? They're reducing it to just, it's about niceness. When Christianity is a declaration that it's not about niceness, it's about newness. You're made new in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, niceness, mere superficiality, 
being a good person, living morally, living uprightly, being honest, generous, compassionate, not complaining, not cursing, not cheating. That's lived out of your own power. But the newness in the gospel is not lived out of your own power by the power of the Spirit gives you. It's about a transformation that happens in your heart, not by simply adding new things onto you, but by removing the old things. You see, simply worrying about whether you're nice or not, it's like going to a farmer's market, buying a bushel of apples, going back home, taking, looking at your dead tree and stapling on the apples to dead branches. It merely has the appearance of life, but no real life but the newness that the Spirit brings into our life is about digging up the dead tree and replanting it in the fresh soil of the gospel so that new life sprouts and fruit is born. The question for you, dear friends, is which is evident in your life? Would people look at you as a letter of recommendation and say, oh, that person, they're a nice person. They're a good person. Or do they look at your life and say, there's something new about them? Jesus himself said that this newness can only come by the Spirit. In John chapter 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus and he talks about being born again or the new birth, he says in John 3 verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And we need to be born of the Spirit by his power. So how does this happen? Paul explains in verse 3, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now here, Paul contrasts ink and spirit. Now, when we think ink, we think permanent, right? Because if I say something like, you know, um, ink, or ink and pencil, you think, well, one is temporary, one is permanent. But Paul, by comparing ink and spirit, is actually saying ink is temporary. Right? Ink can be smudged. Ink can be uh, covered up. Just think about, you ever take a blue book exam and they say, don't write in pencil, write in ink. And all you have is those cheap uh, papermate pens and you're writing. And you know the thing about those pens is sometimes just a glob of ink comes and then you're writing furiously and your hand just starts smearing all that ink. Right? Incredibly annoying. And Paul's point is that that ink isn't permanently there. It can be messed with. And so, it's not ink that's written, it's the spirit that's written. And the spirit isn't written on a stone, it's written on your heart. Meaning that the spirit is working a permanent, lasting transformation in you, deep within. In fact, uh, what Paul's doing here, you know, Paul, by the way, was um, a Jewish scholar, you know, before he was a Pharisee, so he knew a lot of the Old Testament. He's actually drawing back from a promise God made in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 36, where God said this, and I will give you a new heart. That's the newness, a new heart. I'll give you a new spirit I will put within you. And what will he do? He will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. He will give you a new heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, what Paul is alluding to here is that those who have received the gospel receive the spirit so that the heart of stone is replaced with the heart of flesh and they can live in the newness of life and obedience. As a result of that, dear friends, 
if you are a Christian, you're not just called to live a cleaned up life, a cleaned up version of your life. You're called to live out of a changed life. Your life isn't simply refurbished, turned in, repainted a little bit, some screws replaced and put back on the shelf. But you're called to live a brand new life by the power of the Spirit. Because in your new heart, you have new affections and new loves and new desires and new things give you new kinds of joy. This comes as the Spirit is working in you. Paul goes on to write this. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. It's not about us. We don't have the power to change, but our sufficiency is from God. God alone has the power to change. But what? Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, that God works that change now through the gospel. Not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, Paul here talks about being a minister of the new covenant. What does that even mean? Well, if you have something new, that means you have something old. And so this new covenant was a new arrangement that God had entered into with humanity by which he would relate to humanity on new terms. Now, the old covenant was a covenant based on the law, under the letter, Paul calls it here, which means that salvation came only as you were obedient to God and his law. But in the new covenant, Paul says, we're under the spirit. We live in an age where salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus alone, who has now poured out his spirit to give you a new heart by which you can repent and believe and pursue and follow and obey and live for him. Because under the law, humanity was condemned. Humanity was condemned because the law was impossible to do. That's why Paul says these haunting words. He says, for the letter kills. The law kills. And people misunderstand that about Christianity. I was having a talk uh, with a friend a few years ago who had grown up kind of on and off in the church, eventually had a few kids and was saying, I want to go back to church because I want my kids to grow up to be good people. I want to send them, send them to Sunday school. And the only thought in my head is, you know what they teach in Sunday school? They teach the Ten Commandments. You know what the Ten Commandments are? They're letter. You know what the letter does? The letter kills. The law kills because we're powerless to do what it calls us to do. We know what we ought to do. We know what God wants us to do. And yet we have no power within us to do it. So it stands and condemns us. How many of you, if I pull out your phone, how many alarms do you have set up to wake up in the morning? No shame. Four, five, six. I really hope not more than six. But the alarm goes off and we know we ought to wake up, but we don't have the power to wake up. And so we snooze it and the next one goes off and over and over it goes. And then you finally get up and you look and you missed six alarms. And now those six alarms, they condemn you. They show you that you know what you ought to do, but you don't have the power to do it. That's what the law of God is doing, showing us our inability. That's how the old covenant worked. The law served as a reminder that you didn't just fail some of God's law, but you failed all of God's law. And Paul comes along and he says, well, I praise God that I'm not a minister of that old covenant, but I get to be a preacher of grace, that I'm a minister of a new covenant. Because through the old covenant, it only came death, but I get to be a preacher of life. 
And that life comes to us through Jesus Christ by his spirit. For you see, this new covenant was established by Christ when he came to this earth. You see, when Jesus came, he subjected himself to the old covenant. He lived his life under the law. And yet, like un, unlike any other person who ever walked this earth, Jesus lived perfectly, obediently, fully and completely in a perfect righteousness down to the jot and tittle of every law. And although he was the only one who obeyed the old covenant perfectly, he did not despise nor reject or turn away those who had failed. But he came in great love for you and for me. And he gave up his life. And he tasted the death of the letter. He was crucified on the cross. And he gave to us a righteousness that we could not earn for ourselves. And he died the death that we deserve to die. He took the law's punishment for us. And he established a new covenant. And he says, all who are united to me, you will never taste the letter that kills again. For the death was taken by Christ. You see, on the night when he was betrayed and crucified, Jesus was handing out the elements of the Passover meal. And he said in Luke 22, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He established the new covenant, the new arrangement by, with, by which you would have life now through him and his death. So dear friends, we live in this new covenant era under the gospel administration. And so the ministry we do, the gospel ministry we're committed to, the fruit of that then looks like this new life, new obedience offered unto the Lord. As I wrap up now, let me just give three summary thoughts for us, three take-home thoughts. The first is this. Your life is a letter of recommendation. Uh, the famous evangelist Billy Graham once said, we are the Bibles the world is reading. We are the creeds the world is needing. We are the sermons the world is heeding. And would you see your life as that display and demonstration of the power of the Spirit at work within you? That you are the letter of recommendation that others are reading. You are the letter of recommendation that your children are reading. You are the letter of recommendation that your parents are reading. You are the letter of recommendation that your coworkers are reading. You are the letter of recommendation that your friends and family are reading. May we live in such a way transformed by the Spirit of God to give testimony to the power of the gospel at work in us. Number two, the Spirit empowers newness, not niceness. The bar of just being a good moral person is too low a bar for Christians because niceness is not a Christian thing. Newness, made a new creation, given a new heart by the Spirit of God is what you are called. So you don't live out of self-power and self-improvement, but by the power of the Spirit at work in you through the gospel. And number three, gospel ministry is always about the people. Don't be too impressed by the glitz and glamour of the external superficial things in the church. These things may allure us for a bit, 
But in the end, gospel ministry is about people, not the production of a church. All the impressive things about a church, they're not bad things. We want good parking. We want good coffee. We want good snacks. But all of these things can be accomplished by human effort, which means they're not necessarily signs of gospel faithfulness and fruitfulness. What is the work only God can do by his spirit that is to change our lives, to live into new life and new obedience? Let us pray.